0: And welcome ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by
1: Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher, and this, of course, is All the Above the show that brings you news and analysis of all things related to education. Jeff, man, it's great to be back, isn't it? It is. Season we,
0: three. We had a little hiatus there, a little summer vacation. We did have a
1: little little extended summer vacay, yeah. but we're back and we're excited about this new season, and we hope you are too. Of course, if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button or that follow button so that you don't miss any of the great things that we have in store for this season. Now, as for today's episode, Jeff, what is on the agenda?
0: Well, Manuel, uh, we got a good one for everybody, of course. Um, we start off with our headlines, with our do now, as usual. Uh, got some fascinating stuff in education. We might, have to, we might have to issue some grades to people today. Already, man? And, uh, yeah, you know, five week, ten week, uh, uh, we <laughs> the, year, the year is going. Um, but our, our main segment for today is actually uh, a segment we haven't done in a while, uh, which is a show and tell. Uh, and so, folks, uh, this guy to my left here has been good enough to bring in an item for today's show-and-tell which is going to help us talk about really the language that we use in education, help us talk about terms that we throw around and that have great meaning, right. but sometimes bring with them controversy like at risk, Mm. right? Um, So we're gonna get into that today. We're gonna unpack the language we use in education and uh, the impact it has on, on how we think about the work.
1: Indeed. All right, so thank you again for joining us as we embark on this brand new season. And next, we'll take a look at some recent headlines that you might've missed. All right, folks, now it's time for the Do Now where we take a look at recent headlines in education. Jeff, how are we doing to do now today?
0: Well, man. Well, I think given that we are, you know, we're we're into the fall, right? We are uh, into the, the fall. The school year's going, and uh, that it's is time. True. It's time for a little progress check. It's time for the already it's time for the parents to know how we're doing already (laughs) already
1: man Uh, always so so focused on the grades man dang I
0: mean listen you know trying to get to graduation right (sighs) uh, yeah you're right so we have a report card today all Uh, right we're gonna issue some grades to some some people out here
1: all right let's do it let's see what the first grade is hmm bad news Jeff bad news Tell me school about year it. just started. I thought we were all supposed to start with A's because it's a brand new school year. But um, in this case, we have an F. Mm. F for fired. Ooh. Now, this is a story out of Florida. Some of you may have heard about the six-year-old who was arrested by a school resource officer. So the Orlando school resource officer who arrested a six-year-old girl has recently been fired from the police department. The grandmother of the girl said that she received a phone call informing her that her granddaughter was being taken to a juvenile hall facility and the reason given was that the granddaughter had a temper tantrum and kicked out at an adult. And the grandmother says the granddaughter suffers from sleep apnea and that may be the reason why she was in a bad mood that day and lashed out at the adult. Also. Another reason why she may have lashed out at the adult is because she is a six-year-old kid. And (laughs) six-year-olds, they do that. But this school resource officer by the name of Officer Dennis Turner went ahead and arrested the girl as well as another six-year-old at the school that day as well. We don't have information about what that second arrest was about, but um, arresting six-year-olds, Jeff. Is that what we're doing in 2019?
0: Apparently, apparently. I I mean, you know, What can I say? America. Right? This is how it goes. Uh, Yeah. This story is just bananas. Like I saw this honestly, when I first saw this headline, it was on social media, flipping through my feed and I saw it and I just got this sinking feeling and I just kept going. I was like, I'm going to have to read that (laughs) another time (laughs) because I don't have it. it. I don't have it right now to read about a six year old black child getting arrested at school. This is crazy. So, uh, yes, the story is just as crazy as you think it is, right? Right. Uh, A six-year-old, this is, you know, kindergarten, first grade, right? Right. Uh, uh, And, hey, I will even stipulate, Let's say the kid was wildly out of control, you mm-hmm. know, threatening people, whatever, right? The worst possible tantrum you can imagine. I'm not quite sure what sleep apnea has to do with that, but you right. know, whatever, let's just yeah. say the behavior was as bad as it could possibly be. We're talking about a six-year-old in a room of adults, yeah. and this room of adults thought the good idea was involve the police and arrest the child. Right and try right. to bring this child into the same criminal justice system with yeah. murderers and rapists and things, right? Like, Get them started early. This is crazy, completely yeah. crazy.
1: Yeah, we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, and this is almost like a... Uh, a uh, fast forward, jump through the pipeline and just get to the end. Yeah, yeah. Just I take mean, the six year old straight to jail. What's like, more
0: direct than a pipeline? Yeah, I'm not sure. Like that's just. just. <laughs> They're like, beam, beam me up, Scotty. Man, no pipeline, just straight to. Straight there, <laughs> to do not yeah. do
1: not pass go. Yeah. Um, so black students represent 15% of the total student enrollment during the 2015-2016 school year. But according to uh, Education Department's Office for Civil Rights, they make up 31% of students refer to law enforcement And in this case, a six-year-old being referred to law enforcement. Now, Jeff, when I first heard the story, for one, I wasn't surprised I was out of Florida, because Florida. Um, But I was surprised when I saw the officer's photo. I'm going to be honest here. I assumed it was a white officer who arrested this black girl and took her in. Um, In the photo, the first photo that I saw that came out showed a black officer and a white officer together, one being awarded something, and I assumed it was that white officer. Um, But it was the black officer who arrested this girl, which is another reminder that when we talk about systemic racism, when we talk about something like the school to prison pipeline, um, it acts on a systemic level, not an individual level. And in this case, this uh, individual officer who has a, a host of questionable things in his past, not even questionable, just downright. Um, foul activity in his past and behaviors in his past Um, went ahead and fully participated in this school to prison pipeline as the um, black adult in the room and um, this is just shameful.
0: Yeah, 100 percent shameful, and I believe that uh, for the for the hip hop heads out there, mm-hmm. Ice Cube has uh, some interesting commentary on this issue of the behavior of black police officers. So yeah. we'll, we'll let that be for now. As does KRS One. As Check does KRS One. So uh, you know that's 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 an issue long since discussed and settled. Yeah. Um, but I will say to give a little bit of context here, because I um, mm-hmm. you know as much as I think the criticism is 100 percent warranted on this right. particular school resource officer and on this. Particular charter school right Um, the policy that the officer was supposed to be bound by Mm -hmm. was getting approval right from a supervisor in order to issue an arrest of a child under, I believe the age of 12 right Right? Um, now I don't think we have any business arresting any child under the age of 12 but um, you know I'm glad that that kind of policy is in place and at least there's some check and this officer did not follow that policy right right so this officer really was out of line with that, yeah. Another officer involved realized that the policy was not uh, being followed, and right. and also intervened to prevent the uh, the sort of booking of of one of the children. So yeah. So the the story at least has like sort of a you know semi silver lining in the, nah, in the cloud. No, the, the other six year old,
1: <laughs> the other six year old was taken in and processed. Um, yeah, this six year old, the, the girl in this case, she yeah. was taken back by the other officer, which is great. But the, uh, the other boy, at least uh, as far as the reporting goes, um, was taken all the way in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So crazy. The, the system that's broken had a check, and that check failed, <laughs> right, to further right. break the system. Right. Jeff, why do
1: we have police officers on elementary school campuses? Not going to lie. <laughs> of all this discussion about school resource officers and the I era of know. school shootings, you know, I, I always picture school resource officers in high schools, yeah. like, you know, um just i the idea of one being at an elementary school campus i don't know if that's specifically because of the threat of school shooters or what but i
0: i don't know why you need an officer dealing with little kids yeah no i'm i certainly the districts that i've worked closely with at the mm-hmm. elementary level i'm not familiar of there being an officer an armed officer stationed at schools. Right. Um, I am familiar with, you know, officers rotating amongst different schools. Yeah. And at the elementary level, per, you know, particularly being of resource to the school when there's issues in the community or issues with, you know, maybe gang violence or things that are right. happening around the school or yeah, even like, right. you know, two parents that are kind of going at it, right, right and, and they're worried about an altercation amongst the adults. I'm not very familiar with uh, the needs of, for the police to be policing the elementary school children. You know, that's just, yeah. the story is as bad as you think it is, folks.
1: (laughs) Man, what a start (laughs) to the year. Yeah. Well, he's been fired. I mean, to give, um, I guess, credit where credit is due, they did not wait long. I believe he was fired within the week of that happening. So Mm -hmm. um, that's actually pretty rare to hear of an officer being fired um, that soon after any kind of controversy or infraction. So, yeah. Yeah. there's that there's that F-plus. silver linings yeah yes all right what's the next story that we have for today's do now
0: all right man well uh next up our next grade uh is a d damn man, we i think sometimes we need to we need to try to find higher grades yeah, our man. report cards let's model college readiness let's do uh, that. but today this this d is a d as in disparity D is in disparity. So uh, here's the story. Uh, The publication, uh, The Voice of San Diego, recently released a database of San Diego area uh, school data showing comparative results for San Diego schools on uh, something called the California Healthy Kids Survey. And it shows huge disparities throughout the district on all kinds of measures impacting student learning. Now, for all of our viewers outside of the state of California, the California Healthy Kids Survey is given throughout the state. And it's really, it's one measure that's used in the accountability system uh, under state guidelines. It is administered to kids in grades five, seven, nine, and 11. So, right. sort of the end of elementary school through most of high school, um, and measures things like school safety, uh, measures how engaged students are in their learning, uh, relationships they have with adults, supports on campus. Um, and then, for older students, even things like substance abuse prevalence or suicidal ideation among peers. It's generally a culture and climate of the school type right. of type of survey uh, so in this in the city of san diego the san diego unified school district we had these huge disparities um, wealthier and nicer schools with you know almost all the kids saying it's safe right. poorer more heavily minority schools you know uh half of the kids saying it's safe type of a thing right so um big disparities maybe mirroring the same type of disparities we see with test scores and graduation rates and that yeah. sort of thing so manuel what do you think here
1: Yeah, so I'm not surprised by the disparities um, really at all. And San Diego, for those who aren't familiar, I mean, uh, that district spans a a wide area that includes really wealthy, affluent neighborhoods and really struggling neighborhoods and marginalized um, populations. Uh, So to see these disparities, not too big of a surprise. I mean, we've uh, heard stories in the past about discipline disparities within San Diego um, schools with regards to um, the, the impact that Harsh discipline has had on Black students and foster youth, um, and the, the lack of um, suspensions and expulsions in more affluent schools. Uh, so this g- is in line with that, I think, in terms of these disparities. It is a reminder, of course, that when we're talking about uh, educating our youth and we're talking about how uh, students are doing, how schools are doing, it's it's about so much more, obviously, than test scores. But um, asking the students how they feel about their surroundings is is kind of like a, a basic step that I feel like a lot of times we, we forget about in education. And to have 99% of students at, at, what school is that? Ocean Beach Elementary, report that they have an adult who cares about them. Um, 99%, I mean that's, 99% on any, any scale is like, wow. But in this case, almost every school, every student there feels that there's an adult that cares about them, where it's less than half at another elementary school. Think about being an elementary school student who feels that no adult at the elementary school cares for you. I mean, that's the foundation right there. If you're learning in first, second, third grade that nobody cares about you, then, you know, what is your educational outlook look like? I mean, this is, yeah, it's not surprising. It's sad, but.
0: Yeah, I'm, so I, I agree with you from that standpoint, and I I both want to make sure we give the fuller context of mm-hmm. this so it's not to suggest that what we're doing is just throwing San Diego Unified under the bus. Nah. Because uh, the reality is that we could list off probably every significantly large district in the yeah. state of California yeah. has the same type of disparities going right. on, right? So this just happens to be a story out of San Diego. It's a huge district, so it, right. it uh, is obviously really significant um, in terms of sample size. Um, that said, you could probably walk down you know, the street here and, right. <laughs> and find similar uh, disparities in data. So I want to be clear about that. But I will say what I find kind of fascinating about this, even though this data is alarming and is mm-hmm. a big call to action, is in the, in the landscape of things we use for school accountability in this country, um, always we're talking about test scores. We're talking about graduation rates. College applications, right. college acceptances, yeah. who actually winds up going to college, and then who winds up staying in college, AP exams, all that stuff, right? right. Um, and those are important metrics. Uh, I, you know, from my standpoint, I'm not um, challenging them, but it does raise a question about resources and use of resources uh, in our field. And I have long joked in my career. That half of what all of the fancy accountability systems tell us, mm-hmm. you could just pay a couple of teenagers to like walk around the community with a clipboard right. and just ask people: That's Is that true. a good school? Is that not a good school? That's like, true. is that yeah. an okay school? Is it a pretty good school? And probably get data that matches what all these complex psychometrically, you know, um, yeah. sound data sources tell us, right? right? So I think it's an interesting kind of counterbalance to the quantitative data because it's coming from kids and their perspective on their own education and also even though this survey is not free it's certainly a lot cheaper than (laughs) you know a lot of the tests that we administer so I do wonder also about the applicability of simple surveys as uh as like equally valid measures of school accountability they're actually a lot cheaper and less um intrusive on the classroom than testing is in some cases
1: um that brings a, a good point actually I was thinking about um, years where I have had um, students of a grade level that um, take the Healthy Kids survey, um, there have been years where it's been administered or delivered to us as teachers in a very careful way as to like make sure we set aside time in our uh, class period and explain it to students and explain what happens with this data and all that. And other times um, where it's just kind of like an email item and make sure you get this done during homeroom mm-hmm. or whatever. So part of me wonders, uh, especially for the higher achieving uh, schools where data means so much and their reputation means so much perhaps to them and um, to the folks um, around there. I wonder if it um, if there's extra emphasis for the students to respond in a certain way, not to like, totally you, know, um, you know, skew the results, but to make sure students realize how important the survey is and think about this and think about that, and walking students through versus a school where maybe there's long-term subs everywhere and there's so many other things going on that it's like, oh, okay, we got to give out the survey real quick. I do wonder, since it is a simple survey, really simple, um, with a sense of, I mean, students pull it up and just you know, check through and, and click on through, I wonder if that has any role to play in terms of the, the results.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I have the answer to it, but I, but I no, will I say... No, I need the answer. I need the, the answer. <laughs> the, the data uh, cited in the article mm-hmm. uh, from Voice of San Diego only considered schools for which there was an over 50% response rate. Okay. Right? Um, and lots of the schools that they actually cited had like over 80% response oh, okay. rates, right? Yeah. So these are pretty, you know, very, very large sample sizes right. uh, in terms of student responses. So... Um, you know, that is an interesting question, uh, and maybe one some PhD student out there can explore for us, yeah. but uh, I still think it stands that this is a really interesting data source sure, that captures sure. actually what kids think about their school, um, and I would be really curious to see, like, stack that up against test scores, attendance, all right. these other things, and I, I'd be willing to bet the house that we're going to see very close correlation between what schools are identified as good yeah. schools by those measures and good schools by this measure?
1: Yeah. And that will likely also correlate with uh, average household income in those areas mm. as well.
0: You don't say.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Quite sure it's all connected. Jeff. Yeah. 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 All right. One last grade. One last story for today's do now. Our next grade is oh, we're doing better, Jeff. We're doing better. All right. We're up to a B. Good, good news. Here we go. Yeah, we're up to a B. Uh, in this case, B for beauty rest. In California, lawmakers recently passed a bill that requires middle schools to push their start times back to 8 a.m. at the earliest and high schools to push their start times back to 8.30 at the earliest. Mm. The bill originally banned both middle and high schools from starting before 8.30, but to give districts more flexibility in scheduling buses, it was amended to allow middle schools to start as early as 8 while keeping high school start times at 8.30. Now, the research is mixed as to whether imposing later school start times will result in students getting more sleep, according to legislative staff analysis, but a study done by the American Academy of Pediatrics said teens not getting enough sleep was, quote, an important public health issue that significantly affects the health and safety of students. Currently in California, more than three fourths of middle schools and high schools start before 8.30 a.m. with 3.5% of schools starting before 7.30, before 7.30, ouch, yeah, and 27% of schools starting between 7.30 and 8. Majority of schools, 47.6%, start somewhere between 8 and 8.30 a.m. Jeff, what do you think about this bill to push school start times back?
0: So, man, well, I actually have mixed feelings about this because okay. um, I appreciate the, the genesis of this bill. Mm-hmm. And this is an issue that um, at least among educators has been uh, kind of a hot topic of conversation right. for, for really like my whole career, I think, uh, in one form or another. So I'm not upset with the push around policy at the at the state level here. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think if I had to choose a side, because I honestly think there are very compelling arguments on both sides of this case, mm-hmm. um, but if I had to choose a side, I think I would come down on the side of saying, uh, this law is actually a bit of a solution looking for a problem, um, mm-hmm. and that we should not force all districts into... Uh, you know, a, a, a basic start time of 8 or 8.30 for, um, for high schools and middle schools. The, um, the reason I say that is because um, the data is showing that already many districts in the state have already made a move themselves in mm-hmm. that direction, right? And the places that haven't, uh, in many cases, they're actually like some pretty big logistical <laughs> challenges right. that, are, um, that are causing folks to... Uh, to really push back against the policy, right? So what happens if kids go to school later uh, when their parents are responsible for dropping them off at school, right? right? And their parents still have to get to work on time? Are we creating windows of kids being, larger windows of kids being unsupervised? Or are we creating situations where parents are gonna face economic hardship because of that? Um, If we're pushing school transportation more into the center of the adult rush hour, yeah. What are we creating in terms of traffic in many cities, particularly yeah. here in Southern California, the, you know, the uh, the Mecca of, uh, <laughs> of yeah. traffic, right? So um, are we creating unintentional problems there, not only in terms of commute times, but also in terms of pollution, right? Those mm. buses sitting out on the street, kicking out diesel for an extra half hour each times mm. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of buses, right? What are we doing there um, in terms of air quality? So there's a bunch of things like that that I think right. are actually um, legitimate concerns about this that, um, that give, should give us pause in thinking about this as, as a law, in my view.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's a lot more, um, lot more challenge behind pushing back start times than I think uh, one would think off the bat. Um, when you think about after school programs, when you think about busing, when you think about uh, rush hour traffic and all of that, uh, moving a school start time, I could see that as being much more complicated, much more difficult than an average person might think. So the California PTA is in support of this bill, along with the American Academy of Pediatrics, but a lot of uh, groups have come out opposed to this bill. The California uh, Teachers Association, the California School Boards Association, transportation agencies, uh, several school districts. So you being split. Also reflects the fact that uh, school districts seem to be split. Four have publicly, at least at the time of this recording, have publicly come out in favor of it. And um, many have come out opposed to it. El Grove Unified, a massive school district, has come out against this bill. So um, we'll see what happens. I know myself as a uh, adult, I think about teenagers staying up all night, uh, playing video games and looking at their phones and not getting to sleep when they're supposed to. And I don't know that pushing back the start time of school will necessarily um, do anything to help in that situation but that's me being an old you know old man angry that these young whippersnappers aren't getting to bed <laughs> at nine o'clock like I used to they're so they yeah.
0: just the youth are crazy they are they're all they are. crazy if they just went to sleep on time <laughs> they could right. wake up and be fine Then they could walk uphill to school both ways both, like we, we could, did yes, in the exactly. snow and in everything. the snow yeah. California
1: snow big time uh, yeah man <laughs>
0: exactly I do think you brought up actually a really good point though right mm-hmm. um, which is as educators the one flaw like I get why the uh, um the pediatricians right. want this policy. And I totally understand as a person who went to a high school to start at 725 in the morning every day, Ouch. like how brutal it can be in those teenage years when uh. your body is telling you I'm not supposed to be up right now. Right. On the other hand, right, as an educator, I don't know if I could count on one hand the number of times that I have seen teenagers who were tired at school because they went to bed at a responsible time the night before mm, right. and were still tired yeah. at school, right? It's almost always like I was up playing video games. I was yeah. up, you know, we were watching a movie. My cousin's in town and we were, you know, had like a family yeah. celebration or whatever. Or I was just watching TV or whatnot, right? right? So I think as much as this is an issue to address, we also should also think about what the actual issue is. Part yeah. of it is, is early start time, and part of it is maybe more of a public health campaign around yeah. the importance of kids, even older kids who want to stay up, having a regular and kind of healthy bedtime for their developmental state.
1: Where the phone isn't right next to them buzzing all night yes disturbing their sleep yeah
0: and and let me be clear this is i'm not going joe biden put on the record player um okay no that's what this (laughs) with this statement here i'm not saying the parents don't know how to raise their kids i am saying i think it's easy to when you have an older child give them that independence right right and they might actually need uh, a little more structure because they biologically are in need of a longer window of sleep and we're not going to start school at noon or something, right? To let them sleep in all morning. So um, regular weeknight bedtimes are a good thing. And maybe this policy could be a good thing too.
1: Yeah. What time does your school start at? If you're working at a school or working uh, in a district right now, or if you're taking your kids to school in the morning, please drop a comment below, especially if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook and let us know what time does your school start at and what are your thoughts on whether or not that start time should be pushed back? All right. So, Jeff, I think that does it for this episode's Do Now. Yes, indeed. We had an F, a D, and a B.
0: Yeah, at least we're moving in the right direction. Moving in the right right? direction. (laughs) We're getting there. All right.
1: So up next will be today's show and tell. Stay tuned. For today's show and tell, I brought a copy of California's Assembly Bill 413, known by some as the At Promise Bill. This bill, which passed the legislature and, at least at the time of this recording, is sitting on the governor's desk awaiting his signature, aims to alter some of the language we use in education. AB 413 reads quote, At promise has the same meaning as at risk, as that term is generally understood. It then goes on to replace each use of the term at risk in existing ed code with at promise. This transition from at-risk to at-promise is just the latest in a host of changes being made to common terms of discourse within education. For example, what was once almost unanimously billed as the achievement gap is now increasingly referred to as the opportunity gap or equity gap. Yesterday's inner-city school is today's urban or Title I school. Recently, California's Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum received a host of criticisms and was called by the LA Times, quote, an impenetrable melange of academic jargon and politically correct pronouncements for its inclusion of terms like Latinx, herstory with the X, and women with the X. Some of the changes in our lexicon represent an effort to reduce the deficit-oriented narratives surrounding marginalized groups. Don't focus on that kid being at risk. Instead, focus on their promise and potential. Other changes represent an effort to be more inclusive. Hispanic doesn't account for people from non-Spanish-speaking countries in Latin America, and Latino doesn't account for women and gender nonconforming folks, hence Latinx. Some argue that efforts like AB 413 are mere political correctness gone mad and that this is a sign of liberal snowflakes trying not to hurt anyone's feelings. Others say that a shift towards more inclusive and asset-minded language that de-centers the white, cis patriarchy is long overdue. We're just getting into the groove of a new school year, so what considerations do we need to make as we fling that educational jargon across our classrooms and across our schools? So, Jeff, we're just getting into the groove of the new school year. What considerations do we need to make when it comes to flinging that educational jargon across our schools and classrooms?
0: Wow. Well, Manuel, I feel like your your words there were, uh, were very compelling. Mm-hmm. And um, I am of two mindsets about this because there are certain aspects of the jargon uh-huh. that I appreciate and that I think are really important for helping us challenge the kind of Um, systems of uh, oppression that play themselves out in schools just like they play themselves out on the streets and in police departments and, you know, corporate boardrooms. And everywhere in right. our society. Uh, and so I don't think there's just a one hard and fast uh, rule that we should decide by. I don't think our folks on the far right wing who just say that this is, you know, snowflake language and, right. you know, um, just a hyper culture of political correctness. I totally disagree. Um, I also think there's, there's a point at which perhaps we go too far. Um, and so one aspect of what you brought up was the, um, the California legislation considering the use of the term at risk right. uh, or excuse me, at promise in place right. of the term at risk and to me uh i think that is well intentioned i think though that it actually doesn't achieve the outcome we hope it to achieve like nobody's going to start talking about at promise youth and uh that's going to like remove the deficit mindset people have about those youth Mm -hmm. Um, and i think it's actually hiding the the reality that we have which is there's a bunch of kids who we know in our system are like on the edge of not succeeding Right? right and there's a lot of reasons for that some of them are societal some of them are about individuals in our classrooms and principals offices who need to do a better job right right. and I I don't see at promise as a term that actually um, helps that equation I actually hmm. personally say see the term at risk as being more compelling to educators um, who are looking to do something about that right. on a personal level right um, so you know, to me, I see it both ways. Um curious to hear more of your, more of your thoughts as well.
1: Yeah. Well, the at risk, at promise actually was a little surprising to me because um, usually when we have conversations about uh, deficit oriented thinking and thinking about our language and, and how much words matter, uh, a lot of times that comes around to achievement gap in inner city schools or urban schools or title one schools and what have you. I actually haven't heard discussion myself lately about at risk, but I do remember um, long ago, years ago, at risk, starting to seem a little bit um, less and less uh, commonplace and less and less acceptable in educational conversations. Um, so, changing to at promise, I have yet to hear someone use at promise in a sincere way in a, a, a standard ed, uh, discussion, educational conversation about marginalized youth or underperforming youth or whatever you want to say. Um, so, it kind of surprised me because it just doesn't doesn't seem like a natural phrase to use, at promise, at promise. Yeah. And, you know. If,
0: I'll put it this way. If they're at promise, then why are we worried about them? Because <laughs> everything seems yeah. to be so good, doesn't it? I'm yeah, like, yeah. The, the problem is, and and I, I totally get the... Um, The intention of that switch of language is being about, let's make very clear Mm. that we are not saying that the the problem rests within the child, right? right? The problem rests within the system that's created these conditions around the child. And of course, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. But I also think that's just, that's a place where I'm like, we've created a term that is like a solution looking for a problem that's not actually helpful to addressing the problem. Um, How
1: about... Some of the more common ones like achievement gap versus yeah. opportunity gap or equity. Because that's, that's a very common uh, change that I've heard. I mean, yeah. to use the, the phrase achievement gap and you know, I act, in my dissertation, I, I had a whole section about the achievement gap. And looking back on it, I, I don't feel proud about having used that terminology and that I've th- thought about the terminology and the impact it has in terms of um, people's thinking about uh, students and to what extent. The test scores are, are the students' fault or the students'. So what are your thoughts about the achievement gap conversation?
0: Yeah, so I have, I have very strong feelings about this one. And um, I, I am very, very strongly opposed to the use of the term opportunity gap to really? replace the term achievement gap. And I'll tell you why. I do believe that there is such a thing as the opportunity gap. Mm-hmm. And there is such a thing as the achievement gap. And okay. they are two different things. They're interrelated with one another. You can make a very strong argument that the opportunity gap is a large portion of, if not you know nearly all, mm-hmm. of what creates the achievement gap. Right. But um, here's why I think it's really important: we don't lose the term achievement gap. Okay. Um, in America, we have this uh, this long history mm-hmm. of wanting to frame the way things work in our society as being about opportunity. We right. have equal opportunity commissions, and we have you know uh, yeah. the land of opportunity opportunity and equal opportunity for all. And and that all sounds well and good. But what we have created with that use of language is this context in which outcomes don't actually matter. The only thing that matters is the pretense of equal opportunity. And we all know that opportunities are not equal right. in our society. And that that mythology leads into this space of the sort of um, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps uh, mentality because you know the system works. It's just you who has right. failed. You need to do something um, because you know the system works, right? And uh, and I think that moving to just the opportunity gap actually reinforces that type of thinking to me, hmm. right? Like the policy outcomes of an opportunity gap conversation as opposed to an, an achievement gap conversation don't focus on the on the actual results. And what we need to see is, of course, a deep investment in opportunities for students in low income and um, black and brown communities across this country. Right. Right. Um, And we need to make sure that the outcomes that matter, graduation, college attendance, you know, lifespan, income, family wealth, et cetera, um, that the outcomes actually change. And in education and K-12 education, Mm -hmm. the outcomes that we're talking about are um, are, by, by significant measure, achievement outcomes, right? Their reading levels, their graduation rates, right? right. Um, those sorts of things. So I, I don't, I'm not, I believe in the outcome, uh, excuse me, the um, opportunity gap. Mm-hmm. We should talk about opportunity gaps. We should address opportunity gaps. And even if we did, particularly in the short run, we are very likely to still see achievement gaps and we need to work mm-hmm. to address achievement gaps as well.
1: Yeah, see, I don't know, I, I don't, I guess I, um, n- I don't see the opportunity gap and achievement gap as being two separate things. I, I see opportunity gap for all the reasons you mentioned in terms of um, the differences and all the equity, um, lack of equity that we see in, in low income areas, particularly um, black and brown communities uh, with regards to what those students receive resource-wise, um, support-wise versus students in um, in communities that have a lot more. That, is the main driver of what has been called the achievement gap, right? So, like, it's so if we're talking achievement gap, a lot of times when I hear achievement gap, I think test scores, all right, and it goes right back to you know black and brown kids are scoring low, uh, white and uh, certain uh, subgroups of Asian American kids are scoring high, and that gap in achievement. By calling it a gap in achievement, then just the the natural inclination is to think these kids are achieving well and these kids aren't achieving well, which I think does what you uh, mentioned in the first place, in terms of uh, putting that, that, that outcome on the shoulders of the person doing it. Like it's these kids are achieving low versus actually these kids haven't received nearly as much as what they need in order to, to do well in this test. To me, achievement gap is the, the terminology that supports that age old American um, meritocracy ideal because these kids, they're not achieving and what's on them for not achieving versus opportunity being the focus of these students haven't nearly been given the opportunity because this student got arrested when they were six years old for having a tantrum. This student here, they're in a classroom where it's a rotating long-term sub throughout the school year. And that opportunity wasn't there for the student to achieve well on the test scores. So then when the test scores come out and there's this gap, by simply calling it achievement gap or focusing on the achievement aspect of it, it seems to just assume that the students each took this fair test and this student achieved well this student achieved uh, poorly and just the the, the inference is that it's on the students and i think that's why it has changed so i i see the up op- the lack of opportunity as being the driver of the gap so if the opportunities were such that students everywhere received what they needed to be their best selves and everything then you wouldn't have the gap in achievement right so so, so i don't disagree I don't disagree
0: with your logic that mm-hmm. um, from a cause effect standpoint the opportunity gaps that exist right. in our K-12 education system are causal factors of the achievement gap. Like, I, I 100% right, right. agree with that, right? I think we're just actually talking about two different things. When we're talking about mm-hmm. an opportunity gap, we're talking about long-term subs, school budgets, um, you know, overcriminalization of right. kids, of walking to and from school, community violence. Um, we're talking about, uh, you know... Um, Experience of the teachers in the classroom, right? Uh, yeah. Facilities and quality of facilities, air quality, all the stuff that leads to kids doing well and not doing well in school, right? Um, are, are part of the conversation about opportunity gaps. Mm-hmm. And we have to, I think, hold on to a conversation that actually says at the end of the day, when we look at the things that we're trying to say, have we been successful or not with what we're doing in school, right? And I don't mean that everything that would qualify us as successful is measurable Mm. in one way or another, like a kid loving the arts or whatever, like it might be hard to measure that, right? But I would consider that a success. But... The basic things that as a society we think of, if, this, if you're a good school, these things are happening, right? Mm-hmm. Kids are coming to school. Um, kids like being at school. Uh, they're passing their classes and getting good grades. Right. They're applying to colleges. They're graduating. They're not being suspended, right? Those kinds of things. Um, that the outcomes actually matter. And if we move to a conversation where we're just talking about opportunity in this system, I mm-hmm. worry that what we're actually doing is going back um, to a point in time in which we did not care about the fact that graduation rates for black and brown uh, boys in our society were, you know, 50 percent. Right. And for the rest of the country were, you know, 80 percent. Right. Um, you know, so I that's what I worry about. I worry about a conversation that moves us away from well-intentioned as it may be, it moves us away from paying attention to the results right. and what actually happens as a result of the work that we're doing versus just naming the factors that um, we need to improve. Hmm. I think we need both, okay. but I think they are actually two different terms and we need to use them both to name the two things we're hmm. trying to move, which is uh, fix the inequalities yeah. and to make sure that the outcomes are, are equal, right? Hmm.
1: Yeah. I fully trust in your ability to um, make that distinction and to understand the, the roots of that distinction. Um, but I don't trust in the ability for um, the average educator, policymaker, parent, real estate agent to make that same <laughs> distinction. So um, in their hands, in their far less capable hands of understanding the nuances of this conversation, I see achievement gap as being uh, more in lines with, more in line with having that deficit thinking about Black and Brown kids. So it's, for them, I don't think they are capable of necessarily the brain power that you have just laid out there for everybody in um, the differences between these two. I think it's it still goes back to test scores, and these Black and Brown kids aren't achieving. Damn, what's going? Same old same.
0: So it's really funny. I, I kind of uh, started laughing there when you said real estate agents, because yeah. uh, that's so true. Right. Yeah. Um, how much of our school inequality is driven by housing inequality. Right. And I was a principal in, in the Bronx. And uh, for those who maybe don't know New York, uh, the Bronx is kind of the, the borough of the city that um, let's just say like white gentrification was most afraid of, <laughs> of the Bronx and like came to the Bronx last. But mm-hmm. I, my school was in the very southern tip of the Bronx, uh, mm-hmm. a neighborhood called Mott Haven. And uh, Mott Haven has one of the highest concentrations of, of housing projects um, in the city of New York. Um, and also had all these like loft artists type spaces yeah. that were getting uh, like gentrified. And the real estate folks started right. calling it SoBro. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. which we used to laugh about <laughs> until it became actually like kind of a, a serious problem uh, in terms of gentrification issues And so yeah. that was just like side story that made me laugh. Uh, the, yeah. you know they come in and change the name of the neighborhood uh, and. I know for a fact that none of the people who moved into those artist lofts were sending mm. their kids to local public schools. Of course not. And I don't think they were going to, whether we talked about the opportunity gap that existed for those uh-huh. schools or whether we talked about the achievement gap that mm. existed for those schools. I think that hits at a much deeper like cultural right. level than than these terms do. So, so my thing is, I think these terms really are are primarily terms that are about, Policy and accountability right. for states and districts, and also for academia and for research and for like professionals in the field. Yeah. Like most people aren't going to sit around and be like, "Well, this neighborhood has a big opportunity gap, so I'm going to still send my kids to public school in this neighborhood." Right? right? Like, I, I I think I hear your point, yeah. but I think we uh, we would be best served as a society by not losing the emphasis on outcomes that we have had, even though we know right now the outcomes are uh, are unequal. The outcomes reveal the fact that we have a classist and racist system mm-hmm. that reproduces outcomes in a very predictable way along those lines, right? Um, and a lot of that has to do with opportunity. But um, even if we were to say, you know, if they were to say, all right, we're going to, you know, spend $100 million on the schools in your district, right, right. from the state, and now we've closed the opportunity gap, Right, like we would still need to look at well, how are the kids doing, mm. and what are the outcomes around around uh, along lines of race and class, because no matter how much resources we have, and I'm not saying we don't need a lot more resources, I'm just saying we also need to pay attention to the results. Okay, okay. So, what
1: about all the other changes uh, mentioned? Because as educators who have been in the field for a very long time. Um, a lot of the language that we use to describe certain groups or um, to talk about certain systems has, has changed and evolved. And the Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum, which I uh, referenced during the show and tell, is um, a, a, a resource that you could look at and see a lot of the changes. Especially, we're both history teachers, social studies teachers, and the LA Times spoke out against their curriculum as being. Um, too politically uh, sensitive and jarbled and all that stuff because of Latinx and history and these other things. So achievement gap and opportunity gap aside, when it comes to language that is um, in the effort to be more inclusive, and some folks are saying it's really about sensitivity and being too uh, left-wing,
0: what are your thoughts on that? So in general, I think I fully support moves to make language be inclusive and mm-hmm. language be um, for language to function in opposition to oppression, right? right. So I'm, I'm good with changes that fall into those categories, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. I will say there is, though, an important thing to consider. And this is like a very fine line to walk, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, at what point does the language you're using feel foreign and um, and, like, strange yeah. to the masses of people? Right. And therefore, alienating the, the very people you want to speak to because you're not mm. speaking to them in language that they understand. I got you. Right versus the the sort of like, well, at what point are you just perpetuating the racism and sexism and stuff right. that's always happened? Right. So I, I, finding that exact line is a difficult thing to do right? right and it's very subjective and it might even vary from like town to town and city yeah, to city absolutely. and region to region in a state or a country um but i even like relatively recently was wrestling with the use of the term latinx in mm-hmm. uh, in uh my professional context right. literally talking with colleagues saying like hey if we go to an event with parents almost all of whom in this particular schools uh, or this particular neighborhood context we're going to be latinx parents mm-hmm. And we say Latinx, like, do they say Latinx? Are they going to know that we are talking about them? (laughs) Are they going to know that we're talking about them from a place of respect and, uh, you know, um, and wanting to celebrate them as valuable uh, and not as like a term that we decided should be different, right? Which, especially at that time, I'd mostly only heard Latinx used in like college, essays right Right. and like really it was like a higher ed um term as far as i had experienced at that point now i think it's become much more widespread and like people tend to say it in like popular culture references right right? so i think the needle has moved i don't know when exactly it moved yeah but i know it's it's moved on that term right yeah herstory maybe not um you know uh women with the with the x i'm not even actually sure how to pronounce that uh, to be honest, right. did You're I pronounce it, it right? Okay, yeah. so um, so uh, yes, I, yeah. I don't know if I'm making sense, but like there's yeah. an interesting tipping point right. that might be different for different terms.
1: Yeah, and you know, language is ever evolving and I think it becomes increasingly important, especially in our increasingly connected world, to, to hear the voices and listen to the voices um, outside of our own bubble, outside of our own sphere. And I know myself as an old head, somebody who grew up in the age of achievement gap, at risk youth, inner city schools, Hispanic, mm-hmm. like I know that I'm constantly listening and constantly learning and constantly trying to, um, to to facilitate my own growth in those areas to be more inclusive and to make sure uh, nobody's being ex- excluded. And obviously when it comes to using certain terms, like actually I used Latinx in, in um, my class recently and had a student challenge me, uh, a female student who's Mexican-American, she said, I don't like that. I like Latino. And, you know, obviously that's that's her thing, but, she, you know, to her, that was the more comfortable phrase, and she fully understood um, Latinx as uh, being in an effort to be gender neutral, and, and she fully understood all that, but still, to her, it was like, that's not that's not the, pro- the proper term. So, um, I hear you in this idea of, in this, you know, concern over the changing language and the tipping point, and um, when we're trying to use language in an effort to be more inclusive uh, as a particular... Uh, group or identity that we're speaking of see that language in the same way, or is this something that's coming from an ivory tower and making us look even more separated and and, and uh, distant from the communities that we intend to serve? All very very real and very true. So I know myself as an old head. I'm just constantly trying to to learn and to practice. Um, I'm trying. I'm in a serious effort to try to uh, be more gender neutral in my terminology, our intro to the show changed between season one and season two it did. Uh, to, to not use the gender binary context. And I'm trying hard uh, to incorporate that in, in my lesson plans and in the way I speak in front of students and in front of groups. And it's an effort to keep on going. And for those who say it's just uh, snowflake stuff, pol- political correctness, you know, those, those changes to uh, one of the curriculums that we mentioned a few episodes back, um, the CEO of that company was saying it's just about political correctness, things are, are wonky these days. Um, it's not that, it's not. It's really about trying to decenter our curriculum and our conversation and our power away from this, this traditionally patriarchal, white centered conversation and voice and to be a more more inclusive of others and to some it's just words and it's strange and it's weird but um, as you learn and as you practice and as you grow you realize like this is actually hopefully getting us to a place where we could be a more inclusive society especially in education spaces that have traditionally been white and cis and patriarchal
0: yeah yeah, I, I think that's very well said. I think um, for me in general, I try to operate by the rule of thumb of like, mm-hmm. I'm going to defer to the community that a term is speaking to right. as to whether or not it's cool. And when I get the, the feeling, the direct message, the vibe from yeah. them that it's cool, then I will go with what they would like. Right. right. Um, and I, I think actually uh, it, it's hard To do that, right? Um, You have to like be really in tune with a lot of different groups uh, to make smart, wise choices about that consistently. And so, doing this in a curriculum, uh, I can imagine is no uh, (laughs) no small task at all, and not without great, great controversy. Um, You know, an example that uh, that comes to mind is use of the term queer, Mm. right? Which I still I will not use. Outside of, like, sort of an academic context. Uh Because I grew up with that word was, like, that was not a cool word. Like, that that was was definitely a slur and, like, not a good thing. And I got educated as a kid. Like, that's not acceptable. Right? Um, And so I understand that for a large segment of the community, it's, like, it's a a reclaimed, inclusive term that feels empowering. Right. Um, And yet I feel like... I need to let them own that mm. um, because it's it's a it's also a word with a really troubling history, right? right. Um, so th- this is a complicated kind of landscape to walk on.
1: And it's all right for it to be complicated because I mean we're all learning and we accept that we are living in a world where you know complicated is is, is part of the undoing of so many decades and so many centuries of oppression of various groups and it's alright for it to be complicated because we got stuff to sort out. Yeah. Straight up we have stuff to sort out. So let us know what your thoughts are um, when it comes to, particularly when it comes to achievement gap and opportunity gap because I think we're going to have to revisit that because that that there's a lot to unpack there that um, Jeff brought up a lot of points that I hadn't previously thought about in terms of the, the perhaps defense of achievement gap as a, as a term. So let us know what you think below. And uh, please remember if you haven't already to uh, hit that subscribe button or that follow button and uh, stay tuned because up next we have a heartfelt class dismissed. All right, folks, we have reached the end of our first episode of season three. And this is our class dismissed where we give shout outs to people doing great things in education. And today's class dismissed
0: is a heartfelt, special close to home one. Jeff, what do we got? Well Manuel, uh, this is definitely close to home. We have, uh, we have the beginning of season three uh, of all the above is is now, has now finished, right? We are here at the end. And uh, it's an exciting time for us. Um, Over two years ago, we began the process of creating and you know designing this show, yeah. uh, and putting out our first content for the world. And we've had thousands and thousands of folks uh, view our videos, like our videos, share them with folks, and uh, we are we're deeply appreciative of that. Um, this kind of began as a, a wild idea and something that would be fun to do, and um, you know I think now is really an opportunity to share interesting conversations about education with a with a larger audience so we want to say thanks to you to all of our viewers all of our followers all of our supporters uh, folks who check out the podcast version of the show Um, we really thank you Uh, it really means a lot all of your support um, we really appreciate it. We also have some very special shout-outs because um, as many of you who have been following the show may know, um, for the last two years, we had like a third leg of the tripod, so to speak, yeah. uh, who uh, who you didn't often see on camera, but was kind of the producer, technical yeah. uh, whiz behind the show, Mr. William Abanye he uh, over this past summer, moved away, moved to yeah. Texas, right? Yeah. Um, and so we're happy for him, but also big loss for us here on the show. So part of our hiatus was spent figuring out some of the technical issues yeah. and coming up with a new setup. Uh, for season three, which which of course now we've just launched and are really excited about. So um, shout out to uh, Mr. Obanye from afar. Also, we yeah. want to give props to our student crew. A lot of folks might not realize by watching the show that um, for the last two years, we've had mm-hmm. this, this crew of dedicated students who come in uh, on the weekends and at yeah. nights to help us. And um, they're a huge part of our of our success. We even okay. tried to film an episode without them one time. And that, was, that did
1: not go <laughs> well. It
0: sounded like... Um, Starscream.
1: <laughs> it, was, it was ugly. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. So um, several of those students have graduated and moved mm-hmm. on to exciting next chapters in life. So we wish them well. We're going to have a new crew of students coming in to help us um, for season three also, which is going to be Indeed. great. So thanks for being on this journey with us, folks. There is much more to come.
1: There sure is. And speaking of much more to come, we're going to try to up our twitter game so if you're on twitter uh follow our new twitter handle at aota show which is also our website, aotashow.com, where you get all the extras and all all that great stuff. So again, if you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe or follow. Um, Make sure that you don't miss any of the upcoming content as we embark on this third season. And we have a lot more in store. We have a lot of um, excellence on the way that we're excited to share with you when the time is right. So thank you for sticking with us, and we will see you again soon.